legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Justin S. Grant. Despite what cutting-edge science is telling us about the true nature of reality, the world of work and business remains deeply rooted in fundamentalist materialism. However, the coronavirus crisis has shattered the myth that business as usual has any future whatsoever, calling into question many of our assumptions about meaning and purpose in our everyday lives. It is not that material wealth is unimportant, but the forced shutdown of most of our usual activities has provided ample time and cause to reflect on just how out of balance our industrial civilization has become. On a deeper level, there is clearly more at play here than simply a virus, and if we choose to ignore the psycho-spiritual origins of our current predicament, we will be setting ourselves up for future catastrophe. Hello and welcome, Justin, and thank you so much for joining us today um, on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks for having me, Greg. Now, today, Justin, is a follow-up to uh, an interview that we did um, a couple of months back at the tail end of last year. And in that, we began to discuss your book uh, that's entitled Business and Spirituality, Secrets of Personal, Professional and Planetary Evolution. Now, I really would recommend before listeners dive into this talk that they do listen to that first. However, if anyone's not minded to do that, could you just give a brief bio, brief introduction to yourself? Yeah, thanks, Greg. Uh, my name is Justin Grant, and I've been studying comparative religion and philosophy and music uh, as an adult for my entire life. And in the past few years, I went to the University of Philosophical Research here in Los Angeles, which was founded by a great philosopher named Manley Hall and then turned into a university more recently by uh, the late, great Obadiah Harris. And I studied and received a master's degree in transformational psychology. And the president encouraged me to turn the knowledge that I'd learned into a book. So weaving together my experiences in business with my learning at school um, and outside of school and psychology and spirituality, I wove it all together in a book called Business and Spirituality, which is about how we can blend our eternal spiritual life with our everyday busy life in order to augment the both. And uh, it's full of interesting teachings as well as practical advice on how all that can be done. And yeah, I've said a little bit in my spoken introduction about the book, and obviously there's relevant links on this interview page and indeed the interview page for our previous talk if people want to find out more. I did an interview very recently uh, with a fellow called Alex Sakiris, and he's host a skeptical podcast. Now, there was something that he said, he's come from the world of business, and that's his background, and there was something that he said that immediately made me think 
of our previous talk in your book. And I'm paraphrasing him now, and I'm just throwing this out as an opening thought. And he was like, man, I come from the world of business. And that operates in the entire opposite way to the spiritual realm. Because we our discussion had been about right way to live and how to be in balance, how to how to go about you know, being in this world, um, but with still acknowledging the spiritual dimension. And that quote from him was just it really made me think about what it is that you that people like yourself are kind of actually up against in terms of uh, attitudes and psychology. All right. Well, that's a fair question. Well, first of all, um, those of us who were developed in who, who grew up in the so-called Western societies are familiar with public space and a society that's very secularized. But actually, I believe we're in the minority. And if we travel to other parts of the world, we see that everyday life and religiosity and spirituality go hand in hand. There's really no separation between the two. So human beings are spiritual beings, just as the equation equals mc squared teaches us that the universe is energy. Well, religion has been calling energy spirit all along. So to strip the spirituality out of our everyday busyness is actually quite unnatural. Now, it has its benefits because it allows us to focus in the material world, and it allows people from differing backgrounds to come together in a workplace and not have as much conflict between different differing cultural backgrounds. But nevertheless, it is somewhat unnatural. And uh, again, I believe we in the West are actually in the minority of how people behave on the planetary scale. So I believe that when we do try to re secularize our society and our workspaces, um, in spite of the benefits, there are also drawbacks, which are people who are forced to deny their spiritual side all day and all week um, become bored, uninspired, depressed, even ill. So even though there has been tremendous benefit from what the industrialized and secularized system has brought to this world, there's also obvious drawbacks and always room for improvement. So I believe in addition to the fact that it's the minority that um, live in this secularized space, there's also the fact that Many Fortune 500 companies, perhaps most famously in the Silicon Valley area of Northern California, do have flourishing meditation movements and yoga programs and mindfulness and healthfulness and well-being programs. Um, so that's a hopeful sign. And what I learned when researching and writing the book is that they've done studies and that found that um, concluded that the most cherished part of a corporate culture, you know, modern-day workplace, were the well-being programs. So the employees really are attached to the well-being programs, which goes hand-in-hand hand with spirituality, but doesn't necessarily have to be religious. So I think the trend is to rebalance away from something so secular um, towards something that is spiritual but not necessarily, necessarily religious, and the individual can benefit from this, as well as the organization itself, and surely the entire planet as well. Because uh, regardless of people's opinions on man-made global warming, uh, there is the fact that 
human beings are consuming more planetary resources each year than the planet can regenerate each year, and that's unsustainable. And all of us with a heart and a mind recognize oceans flooded with plastic and the like are unacceptable and, again, unsustainable. So there's room for improvement, and the book really explores how this can be done and why it might be done. Um, and again, I believe there's all sorts of momentum in this direction. Um, so it, it won't be easy, but it's already underway. And uh, it's something that we need to do if we want to continue to thrive and even if we need to, if we wish to survive on this planet as a species. Yeah, we find ourselves at a very interesting juncture in history, don't we, at the minute? And, and for all sorts of reasons, you know, because of the global pandemic, um, all sorts of ways of doing things are being called into question. And we'll come back to that a little bit more later with regard to business challenges and opportunities there. But it's interesting that uh, you were talking about the mindfulness and, you know, employee wellness uh, practices in some parts of Silicon Valley. Uh, <clears throat> certainly lots of people who know nothing much about those businesses in terms of their inner workings will be aware of, you know, Google and Apple and other corporations with and, and the sort of employee benefits that they provide along those lines. Now, way before any of that, my first memory of something along these lines, and I don't remember the details, but it was seen as very quirky and even a little bit eccentric from a Western perspective. And that was Japanese corporations decades ago were incorporating uh, what I can really describe some kind of mindfulness or spiritual dimension, you know, based in their own culture into the workplace. I rem I've got vivid memories of images of car auto factory floors, you know, with all the workers lined up uh, doing, I'm not quite sure what before they started work, but the whole point was that it was meant to benefit their sense of self and their, you know, their, and their mental and emotional state. Outstanding. Yeah, well, thanks for bringing that up. And yes, hopefully you and I as well can be forgiven for having a Western-centric point of view because that's the, the reality that we've grown up in. But indeed, um, these spiritual practices, many of them, especially meditation, are born of the East and have come to the West because teachers from India, China, Japan, etc. have brought them over to the West and popularized them to our benefit. So... Um, the Western way is tends to be secular, scientific, and materialistic, whereas the Eastern way, generalizing, has been more introspective, spiritual, spiritual, and concerned with the inner world. So as our world is shrinking because of technology, transportation, communication, etc., um, there's this amalgamation of the two different opposing forces of Eastern and Western ways. And, of course, we're interchanging the good and the bad, but um, we have a choice, especially in our society, to decide what is to our benefit and to the benefit of the organizations that we participate in, which is uh, tremendous, actually, the freedom. So getting to your point, um, I believe if we bring this Western science to blend with the Eastern science, then we will see proof of the efficacy of these uh, spiritualness, spiritual and mindfulness practices. And um, that will 
enhance our acceptance of them. And also, of course, just as we become more familiar with things, they become less foreign to us, obviously. So as these things continue to spread and permeate into our culture, they become more normalized, more accepted, and then the scientific support also comes along to add to the enthusiasm for these practices and techniques. Now, in all the hundreds of shows that I've done in this incarnation of legalized freedom, probably more than half of them have in some way involved a discussion of different ways of looking at the world, looking at life, looking at reality. And the sort of triumvirate has come up again of philosophy, religion, and science. And I've made the analogy, if you think of a trident, you know, like a fork, and you have philosophy, religion, and science as three prongs of that. As you move back down from the points, you eventually get to the handle, so they all become one. And I kind of think that's quite a good analogy for these ways of looking at the world, which which at one point were complementary, have become sort of competitive, as it were. And this, for me, is a further metaphor for the world of work, our working lives, our business lives, you know, our job, which for many people gives them their identity, comes to define them, and they feel very lost without it. But that's the lack of balance that there is in seeing um, existence only through the lens of science or only through the lens of religion, uh, I say, is mirrored in the, the one-sided, out-of-whack Western, particularly business model, where work hard, play hard, and ideas of balance and rest and time out become sort of luxuries. If you mean, it's kind of all or nothing attitude. It also led to the male domination of business for a very long time. And there was a phase where women almost became like men in order to compete um, on a level playing field um, in the business world. And there was very much a focus on the outer and dismissal of the inner um, in conventional Western business model, you know, certainly in the uh, in the post-war period in the early 21st century. And I think the rejection of the of the inner life in favor of just the purely the outer, the materialist uh, worldview was mirrored in a way in the disregard for the environments and for what are known in the business world as externalities, you know, costs, very real costs in the, the process of doing business, but not borne by the corporation in question. Uh, a good example of an externality is pollution. Materials dumped into the environment, which have to be cleaned up, but the company who dumped them don't pay for it. Um, another externality is a benefit to the company, for example, like infrastructure, roads, railways, that the company can benefit from, but they're built at public expense, not to the expense of the company. So in all of this, what I'm trying to emphasize is a lack of balance and a focus on very much on one, on the, on the outer and on the self. Indeed. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot to unpack there. But yeah, um, what we learned from theosophy, which translates as theo, God, osophy, wisdom. So divine wisdom is theosophy is this interweaving of philosophy, religion, and science as the trinity of truth, as it were. And we see in nature trinities everywhere, uh, starting with the fact that, you know, in our own lives, a stable stool requires at least three legs to be stable. And a grounded electrical outlet requires three prongs and ports to be stable. Um, And also the screens that we all stare at 
all day, every day, uh, phones, tablets, computers, TVs, etc., are all based on the trinity of light, red, green, blue light, which together make up white light, um, and in various combinations make up all the lights. So, yes, uh, trinities are significant and have been personified, of course, in Christianity, Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, or in Hinduism as the three primary deities that create, sustain, and destroy or transform the universe continuously. Um, and there's a reason that, that trinities keep popping up um, as important. So when it comes to us little humans trying to navigate our lives on this small planet and this infinite universe, we can turn to the three trinity, the three aspects of truth-seeking in philosophy, religion, and science. And indeed, when people only believe in religion and reject science, they suffer. When people only believe in science and reject religion or philosophy, they suffer too. So, you know, I chuckle when I see these memes floating around the internet that say things like, I believe in science, as if the people who posted that are so much smarter than people who try to glean wisdom from religious teachings and, this, and the like. And an obvious problem with saying I believe in science is that science understands far less than 0.0001% of all knowable things in the universe. So maybe we don't need to know everything, but uh, science leaves a lot of unanswered questions. And any humble scientist who is a wise scientist will acknowledge that uh, science is incredible, but it's surely not enough to navigate our way through a complex life and highly complex universe. So, yes, bringing these three different approaches together expands our viewpoint, our understanding, and our ability to navigate our lives and contribute to the organizations and societies that we find ourselves in. So, um, these sort of things are expanded upon in my book, uh, both for for practical reasons as well as inspirational reasons, because it's important that we not only understand how our lives work and the universe works, but also why we should try to contribute rather than just be blindly selfish or entirely materialistic. And in summary, um, we're all part of the universe, and when we are in a selfish mindset, we really, in a sense, hold ourselves against the universe. We, we come to fight with the universe itself when we are behaving in pure selfishness. And regarding the focus on the outer world, the material world, well, clearly we are beings living in material bodies in a physical world, so that is all tremendously important for us, for us to survive and thrive. But we know from Buddhism that the universe is pure emptiness, and from science that every atom is actually mostly empty space, or apparently empty space. Um, and furthermore, what this all means is not only is the material world empty, but it's also fleeting. So if we try to focus all of our attention and find happiness, inspiration, and security only in the material world, well, we're bound to be disappointed because the material world is ever-changing. It's not as static as, as we'd like to imagine, and it apparently is to us from our 
point of view, living in this dimension. So for all these reasons, um, it's important that, as you say, we strive to balance these trinities of truth um, in our personal lives as well as our professional lives. Probably every significant strand of spiritual teaching down the ages has spoken of inner and outer worlds and material things and the limits thereof. And it's almost like the, 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 the way of doing business that, that was only, could ever have been very short term, but of course was seen as like a new normal, a permanent state of affairs. You know, that, um, avaricious, greedy, churning through resources, bulldozing over any obstacle business, you know, perhaps epitomized by, uh, business in the eighties is sort of a, a macrocosm of the microcosm that is within each of us, which is that that betrays a certain, it, it's first of all, it is clearly a, a questing, a seeking, a craving for fulfillment and meaning. But as I said, that we, we would know, we, we have known, and I think perhaps everybody knows uh, deep inside themselves that that in, its, in and of itself is not where fulfillment lies. And these outer cravings betray an inner lack. And I think for a lot of people, that's very self-evident, even as they might engage in uh, sort of consumerism to some level in their daily lives. But nevertheless, it doesn't stop most people behaving in that way. We will come on in a minute. If you can re- reflect on what I've just said, we will come on for a minute in case anyone's thinking. Uh, you know, Mitch Horowitz is known to, to both of us and uh, I've interviewed him a couple of times and in his uh, teachings on new thought. This is not to dismiss the outer world, the world of material things, the world, you know, the material desires. These things are not uh, evil in and of themselves, but it's just if that becomes your sole focus, then that, that is a problem. Yeah, indeed. All good points. Well, I think it's important that we reflect on the fact that greed and materialism are nothing new. I mean, if we study world history or we read scriptures that were that emanated thousands of years ago, we see that human beings are always wrestling with their lower desires and needs in the material world as long with with their higher aspirations and visions from the spiritual world. So I do think it's important that we are careful with using the phrase, which which you didn't, by the way, Greg, but um, people tend to use the phrase sometimes these days, as in, you know, the world's going to hell these days, which, again, just isn't true <laughs> if we study history and world scripture. Um, so greed and materialism are nothing new. But you did touch on the fact that in the 1980s, um, the thing, something changed, and there were a lot of changes that happened in the U.S. with... Um, taking the dollar off the gold standard, as well as this awful idea that the sole purpose of a for-profit corporation is to add to shareholder value. And before then, businesses certainly exhibited greed and ruthlessness, but this blindly selfish idea and and pure focus on profitability wasn't nearly as prevalent as it became after that false concept was introduced of shareholder primacy. Before then, the common sense understanding was correct, and that's that an organization, a corporation, serves all the players and you know needs to feed every hand that comes and goes in, uh, in relation to the work and service of an organization. So... In my book, you know, I, I just think this is 
this is a terrible concept that's done tremendous damage to the planet um, as well as to human beings because it's so totally materialistic. Now, thankfully, plenty of CEOs of major Fortune 500 companies reject this idea because it flies in the face of common sense and it negates the fact that we are spiritual beings living in a material world. So um, I'm hopeful um, that the trend will continue towards common sense and wholeness and balance. And again, there's already plenty of momentum in that direction. And with the pandemic, we do see a lot of people talking about focusing on um, what really matters in life rather than, you know, oh, I got the new this or the new that which uh, we all know deep down is unfulfilling, even though it may be momentarily exciting um, to get something that excites us in a material way. So uh, to answer your question, I think that we live in a competitive world. So keeping up with the neighbors is um, not only natural, it's in many ways necessary. But when the competitiveness and the, the rat race begins to spin out of control, as it clearly has been since the 1980s, perhaps, um, always nature's hand steps in and rearranges the system so that uh, things do come back to balance. Um, and in conjunction with the wisdom of the planet itself, introducing these cosmic shocks into human society in order to try to rebalance, there's also the spiritual hierarchy, always sending prophets, masters, even avatars to present themselves to the to the human world in order to rebalance and realign priorities towards something that serves primarily the spiritual, because that is the eternal life of humans, and also helps assist in the material component which which is important because we do need to survive and thrive in this world so in the book i ex expand on a lot of the how and the why of these these ever-changing tensions between our material and our spiritual in other words our busyness our business and our eternal spiritual life now for most of the I say the post-war business boom, 20th century into the 21st, mental and physical health for a workforce would, of course, been seen by uh, corporate employers as important, of course. You know, if people are mentally or physically unwell, that they're not going to be productive. They may even be off work. And perhaps a thoughtful or more caring corporation company might have provided uh, maybe a healthcare plan uh, to allow their employees to take advantage of that uh, you know there's sort of uh, economies of scale there they might even have had a, a counseling service you know depending if the company's big enough so if employees um, had issues there that they could have they could speak to someone about it but overall it was still very much seen as the realm of the individual to look after you need to look after your own physical and mental health it's not nothing to do with us but really you know we're, we're a, a company that makes widgets or you know produces software or whatever and you just need to show up for work in good shape. One thing, thinking back to this balance or this lack of balance in our inner and outer lives, one thing that the the pandemic and all the 
upheaval that's been unleashed in the work in workplaces and in other aspects of our daily lives by lockdowns and other measures is how ill prepared people have been mentally to cope with this disruption if you see what i mean they many people seemingly have not really had the resources to call upon within themselves no fault of theirs doesn't make anybody lesser it's just i think a side effect of our culture really in discouraging that and bringing the thing full circle it may be then alluding to what you said going forward that this is something that large larger employees employers sorry have to take into account more not that we're saying that you know necessarily anything on this scale is 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 around the corner but the point is it's, this has focused a lot of people's attention i think um on weak spots i think in systems in people's daily lives uh right up to uh business governmental level yeah indeed indeed well those are all good points and yeah i want to reiterate that on the one hand we can always do better as individuals and organizations and societies on the other hand we do live in a very complicated world uh, that is sometimes combative and oftentimes competitive. So it is fair that these apparently ruthless for-profit corporations are engaged in competitions with one another. So if you want to run Enlightenment Incorporated, that's wonderful. But if all the corporations around you are ruthless incorporated, then you're just going to be out of business soon, and the world's not really going to be brightened by your pure idealism. So tying back to our earlier discussion on um, shareholder primacy and this ruthless pursuit of profits, well, it's extraordinary when corporate leaders stay true to common sense and balance and reject that idea. But there are tremendous pressures coming from Wall Street and surrounding corporations that essentially scream, you know, if if you, Mr. and Mrs. CEO, CEO, are not going to pursue profits at all costs, then we're just going to assassinate your career and get someone in the chair that is going to do that. So it is challenging. Um, but like we've been touching upon, um, this competitiveness and these rat races do spin out of control and lead us into a societal trend that we all know deep down is unfulfilling and unsustainable on a global scale. So again, this is why the wisdom of the spiritual hierarchy, the planet, even the solar lord, um, as it's called in New Age and theosophical teachings, um, send these shocks into the humans of the world in order to force us to make changes. And, you know, a lot of what we take for granted is a product of the Industrial Revolution and what might be called the Oil Age, where, you know, humans found, harnessed the power of oil, which had never been done before, which is re just readily available energy and, and fuel. And this, once again, has brought tremendous good to the human world and there's much to be grateful for but we do see it spinning out spiraling out of control and causing us tremendous trouble uh, which needs to be readdressed and human human beings and great leaders have been talking about 
trying to wean humanity off oil for decades, but we haven't made much progress. And then, uh, as a shock to most all of us, the pandemic came along less than a year ago, and suddenly oil has gone from being the world's most valuable commodity to something that actually is a liability, because these companies have to store, protect, and maintain their stores of oil, even though, for the most part, nobody and no businesses are buying it. So uh, it's incredible um, how it's gone down recently, but we do have this new opportunity to reset our approach to living in a globalized world and creating something that is sustainable for the planet and pleasurable and enjoyable for us as individuals. So hope springs eternal, as they say. Uh, there's no guarantees that humanity is going to make it as a species, but we certainly have been uh, given this tremendous shock that can be used to our betterment and as painful and tedious and worse as it's been for all of us, um, as they say, never let a good crisis go to waste. So there are many people in high places um, working towards that vision and people throughout the planet praying for a new world uh, that we can create given all that's happened rather jarringly quite recently. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.